Hey everyone, and welcome to our first segment of Drone Life News. Now, normally you're used to seeing me in a whole new well, platform with the Ask Drone You, but now I am joined by co-host Miriam McNabb from Drone Life News. In fact, Miriam has been writing articles about the drone industry, specifically the commercial industry, for longer than Drone You has even been around. That's right, over 3,000 articles you know what that means? Miriam really knows what she's talking about. Miriam, welcome to our first edition of Drone Life News. So happy to have you. Thank you. So happy to be here. So glad we could work together. I'm very, very, very excited to work together with you. Your industry knowledge is significant and deep. And like I said, you've been around, you know, uh, in the drone industry longer than we have. And it's really exciting to be able to get your perspective and your knowledge, uh, which brings us to our first piece of news, which as I've been out of kind of the news segment, I didn't even realize the FAA had a symposium. So forgive <laughs> me for not knowing. Um, but it looks like the FAA is ready to set up a new ARC committee for BVLOS flights. What's going on here? Yeah, that's correct. So last week was um the FAA UAS symposium they do uh, in conjunction with AUVSI, this was another virtual edition. I think they're going to do a hybrid or uh, an in-person later on in the year. And FAA Administrator Steve Dixon delivered a keynote address. He kind of outlined the progress that the FAA has made in sort of delivering drone rules and then announced the formation of a new Aviation Rulemaking Committee, or ARC, uh, to focus on BVLOS flight. And I think this is kind of significant uh, for a couple of different reasons. First of all, because I think that the uh, formation of an ARC really indicates uh, that the FAA is continuing to kind of try really hard to collaborate with industry on this, um, which I think is really important. It's worked for them before, you know, starting with Michael Huerta kind of introducing uh, that model of, of uh, collaboration with industry players. And there have already been a couple of uh, companies announcing their inclusion on that ARC. But um, that's one thing is that it, it sort of focuses on the collaboration aspect. And also, I think it means that BVLOS flight is getting closer to actually um, happening because they have formed this arc. This is also the Beyond program, which you may know is kind of the second phase after the sunset of the IPP. We have the Beyond program. And the Beyond program is also focused on gathering data specifically around BVLOS flight. Now, do you think that this arc for BBLOS is really setting up kind of the continuation of the evolution of the industry? You know, a lot of people have argued that the FAA in their rulemaking committees have really been rulemaking for the future, for what's to come, you know, regarding uh, unmanned mobility, the idea of passenger-based drones. Do you think that this arc with for BBLOS is just one more step in their kind of strategy to get to that point? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that um, specifically with uh, Bivilo's flight, with the remote ID ruling that they did, they're absolutely having to kind of future proof these regulations. And it's very difficult. You know, if you think about Bivilo's flight in terms of a drone that weighs, you know, two pounds versus a drone that's carrying six passengers, those are two very, very different things. And to, to try and um, contemplate kind of how those are going to fit together is is really a big, big job. Um, I don't think that they're going to regulate directly on passenger drones, you know, coming up. But I do think that that's a big uh, um piece of the industry that's out there it's it's for the future and i do think that drone delivery you know before we see urban air mobility and and am we're definitely going to see drone delivery and drone delivery is definitely first and foremost in everybody's mind when they're talking about uh flight beyond visual line of sight you know, because that's something that's happening now and it's just waiting, champing at the bit to expand. It seems like we really need these rules, too, to scale those operations, to really see drone delivery at scale. You know, not just, you know, the Smith's grocery store, Kroger, dropping off packages to the parking lot, but truly getting all the way to people's homes and whatnot. So it seems like this arc would allow that scale. Right. And, and you know, you got to think about kind of, what's possible within the realm of of uh, regulations as they exist today, you know, and so you're talking about um, dropping things off in the parking lot or even, you know, within a one mile radius, that's sort of necessarily going to be limited. Now, it's not that it's not useful. It's very useful. You know, if you take a drone out on your UPS truck and you go to the end of the street and then you and then you fly around the neighborhood, right, that's still very useful. That represents a, a lot of value there. But I think if you think beyond what's possible, not only does BVLOS flight need to be available, but it needs to be easy enough for these companies to apply for and get that it can scale across. You know, it can't just be one company that gets permission for BVLOS flight or under very, very specific circumstances or that it takes three years for the application process to go through. The regulations have to be set up in such a way that um, – companies can achieve it, that they can actually apply and receive permission in a reasonable time frame. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Well, that brings us to our next story, as it seems like uh, DJI has actually been cleared by a DOD audit. But the real question remains, will this really impact public safety agencies and those using these DJI drones? Miriam, what do you have? Yeah, so this was a, a really interesting story. You know, I follow this, um, the sort of ban on China-made tech and so forth pretty closely. It's really been fascinating to watch. And uh, so DJI's government edition drones, those are the drones that they produced uh, kind of in collaboration with the Department of the Interior way back. Um 
DJI government edition drones were tested. Uh, the exact phrase, I think, was show no malicious code or intent and are recommended for use by government entities and forces working with U.S. services. And that was an audit report that came out of the Pentagon. It really kind of vindicated uh, what DJI had been saying about the government edition drones, which was, you know, hey, there just are not these big cyber vulnerabilities. We're not sending stuff back to the mothership. Um, but the more interesting question I think that you asked is, is does this have a big effect on DJI? And I'm not sure about that um, as it does. I think that the government, uh, the U.S. government uh, pushback on Chinese drones is started out um, sort of as a security thing. You know, they, they voiced it as this is a security uh, issue. And there is, in fact, a law in place in China that says that, you know, if the Chinese government wants to go into a Chinese company and look at their servers, they can do that. You know, it may or may not be enacted very often. It's probably not as black and white as it sounds. Uh, but that law does does in fact exist. You know, DJI's position is, hey, there's nothing on our servers for them to find anyway. But I think the real question is more about um, what's the government's position on the domestic drone industry. And I think that if you look at sort of other stories around this whole topic, you see that the U.S. government has really made a decision to support the domestic drone industry. So in the beginning of the COVID crisis, uh, where the U.S. government granted CARES Act funding to certain drone companies, um, Scadia was one, AirMap was one, uh, that's a really interesting move because that shows that, um, you know, that funding, which is generally designated for critical infrastructure, they used to do that for things like uh, garment manufacturing or uh, shipbuilding or transportation. You know, that was designed to make sure that in a time of crisis uh, or a time of war, the U.S. could produce uniforms you know, or tanks or, or ships or whatever. And so to include drone companies in that kind of a, a funding relief program uh, was really interesting because it meant that the U.S. government is looking at drone platforms now as critical infrastructure, which they are. They're, they are now a critical part of uh, the military machine. They're a critical part of our defenses. They're a critical part of, of uh, industrial use. So I think that what we're seeing is sort of, yeah, there was this security issue out there, which um, people can can sort of dive into more deeply and have different opinions about. But there's really also the issue of the U.S. government sort of making a clear decision to support the domestic drone industry. And that's something different. So I'm not sure that the Department of Defense audit necessarily has a, a huge impact on the situation. That is fascinating. Fascinating detail and evidence to showcase the, the U.S.'s stance um, on uh, drones as critical infrastructure, which makes sense, right? In the time of war, we typically do support manufacturing, just as you said. 
which does allude to the question of how did air map get in there. But, uh, you know, when you, <laughs> you know, I'm not touching that one with a 10 foot pole. Yeah, I don't know. They were one of the companies that got CARES Act funding. <laughs> All I need to know is who is your lobbyist because they work. So, <laughs> but that said, uh, you know, as you talk about Skydio, that brings us into our next piece of news. That's right. We've seen a whole new development of LIDAR. You know, we've talked about what would happen to the industry if we saw an evolution of LIDAR, if we saw, you know, a MIMS kind of based LIDAR. And it looks like one particular company is essentially trying to empower drone manufacturers to have that same kind of onboard vision, much to the liking of what Skydio does, but it seems like at greater detail. Um, Miriam, what is this new micro LIDAR and, you know, why is it so important? Yeah, it's it's this is one of those stories that, you know, I get I get so many press releases every day. I get about 250 emails a day. And so I'm sorry, guys, if you sent me press releases and I didn't didn't jump all over them. Um, and some of them stick out at you for for various reasons. And this one had a an image that showed this lightwear LIDAR next to a golf ball. And they're about the same size. And it's a USA-based lightwear LIDAR has announced the world's smallest, lightest micro LIDAR. <laughs> and so um, what they're saying is, you know, that this really could provide drones with the, quote, eyes, unquote, that they need to see obstacles and navigate safely beyond visual line of sight, that they could be used for um, sense and avoid, that it's kind of taking autonomy to a whole new level uh, because it's lightweight and small enough to put on a smaller drone. So this is this is kind of huge because my um, LIDAR is so critical for so many different uh, applications. You know, it kind of gives machines depth perception, <laughs> lets them sort of see around corners. So we'll see. You know, it's just been announced and we'll see how widely it, uh, it can be adopted um, and how easy it is to integrate with drone platforms. But, um, you know, what I feel is sort of there's there's always a first and then there are there are is kind of a movement in whatever that direction is. Uh, you know, LIDAR has generally just been too big, too heavy, and too expensive um, to be critical. So if, if we're finding a LIDAR solution that uh, can meet the needs, could be a whole new ballgame. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I know Elon likes to uh, troll LIDAR. He says that it's not the way to go. But, you know, with this uh, rapid involvement um, that we have seen with LIDAR. I mean, this could literally give most drones the vision perception, like you, you said, the depth perception, um, but also give uh, drones a cheap means of uh, GPS denied navigation, you know, with the ability yeah. to map the environment and kind of fly through it. And to be able to do it that cheaply, I think even Skydio would be jumping on it because the prices of the GPUs that are in those Skydio drones, it kind of makes you wonder how Skydio makes money. Uh, but thank you for the low prices. So that, so that said, <laughs> I think this is a huge deal, right? I mean, this is M300 level uh, obstacle avoidance because it's based off of, you know, lasers, uh, laser beams. But uh, anyway, I think it's a, a big deal for sure. 
Miriam, in our next piece of news, it seems like Sony is ready to get into the manufacturing game as they have proved that they can create cameras at scale. It really makes you wonder, are they going to be able to bring drones at scale, especially with this new AirPeak S1? I know. So interesting, right? So we have seen one camera company try to create a drone before. We did see the GoPro, right? But um, is this the first drone that's really created for a line of cameras instead of the other way around? It really seems like Sony is trying to do that. I mean, they said that this camera, you know, works with the A7S line, the A7R line, the A9 and the A1 line. So, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head here, Miriam, and the fact that Sony is creating a platform for their line of cameras, uh, which is a pretty big deal. Now, I know that a lot of consumers are worried and price conscious as the aircraft is priced at $9,000 to be released this fall. That said, in their press release, they did mention that the gimbal would be sold from a third party vendor. And, you know, Miriam, you brought up GoPro. We all know what happened with 3DR. We all know what happened with <laughs> yeah. you know, GoPro yeah, and DJI. Yeah, so interesting. So interesting. And that $9,000 price tag, too. I mean, I kind of wonder because uh, $9,000 is a lot more than most of your smaller sort of prosumer multi-purpose COTS drones here. But then again, it's a lot less than the $30,000 purpose-built, like, super-duper, either for for videography specifically, um, you know, for news gathering or for some kind of special industry. So hmm, where are they trying to fall right in that market? It's such a good question. It really makes you wonder, too, are they making the same mistakes that some of these previous manufacturers have made where they're not selling complete systems? Or rather, is this a new strategy to try to throw everyone off because Sony has proven over and over again that they can scale manufacturing? Right, right. And, you know, I mean, make some of the same mistakes. It's like, oh, check the battery ports, check the battery ports. Wasn't, wasn't that the problem with GoPro? That was so weird that, you know, GoPro, it probably was a great drone. And they just had that thing go wrong right at the beginning. That was that was it. But um, yeah, Sony is um, certainly a huge manufacturer. That, uh, if anybody can do it, they can. So it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out and what kind of market share they can get. Because they certainly have the name, they have the distribution channel already, they have the manufacturing, so we'll see. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because they were very specific, too, to allude to the fact that they are a Japanese manufacturer and it's a proprietary flight controller, you know, trying to set the stage for, hey, we're not Chinese, but we're also not American either. Uh, you know, the $9,000 price point, you bring up a really powerful point. I We just did a podcast with a Sony creator. And he's got, you know, the A7R4 and the A7S3, which are two pretty expensive uh, camera bodies. And I said, you know, an Inspire 2 X7, uh, you know, you're at 9400 right there, right? And so would you rather purchase an Inspire 2 or, you know, the S1 platform? And so I'll tease it and say I think everyone's got to check out that particular show to hear from Gavin as far as what his thoughts were. But in short, you know, he's ready to jump all in at that price point. It's not scaring him off, just like you alluded to. Uh, But, Miriam, you brought up a lot of great news, and I just want to say thank you so much today for coming here and prepping. But I'm I'm really curious, uh, the FAA Symposium, is there anything else that – 
that we should know that came out of that because I mean I, I I'm not lying like I really had absolutely no idea the symposium was last week I guess this is what happens when you get off of Facebook so <laughs> so um, DFA symposiums are always really interesting and and uh, you know AUVSI always has a lot of great uh, educational programming. It's kind of right up my alley. I'm, I love the policy shifts. I love to kind of follow those stories. And um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about uh, anything to do with the FAA is I love to listen to the FAA keynotes because often when you troll through kind of uh, exactly what some of the the um, luminaries at the FAA say you get some good little nuggets about what their thoughts are on other things. And um, I will mention this one because this one really came out at me. This has been a conversation that I've had with so many people in the drone industry for years, which is, you know, drone regulations, great. It's great to have drone regulations, but who is going to enforce these drone regulations? You know, I mean, who does this? Like the FAA is a small organization. They're stretched. We all know that, you know, professional pilots are doing their best to self-monitor and trainers like you are doing your best to tell everybody what the rules are, but who enforces the laws at, at, at the at the same point. And um, here's one of the really interesting little nuggets that came out is that Steve Dixon said in his keynote address for public safety and law enforcement, we're counting on you to enforce the rules once they're effective. So that was kind of an interesting answer. Police, we're, we're talking police. And in a lot of ways, I mean, that's, boy, that's just subject for a whole huge conversation that we'll probably have over the course of several different weeks here, Paul. But, um, you know, when you think about it, who enforces the rules uh, with your car? And and I've always said that I think that it's more appropriate to compare drones with automobiles than with manned aircraft simply because uh, anybody can buy a drone. Anybody can get a drone license, right? It's not that easy, but neither is getting a driver's license. You know, you... Um, Anybody can drive a car and fly a drone, and I think that the sheer potential volume makes that a better comparison. So that was a very interesting little nugget that I took from the from the symposium. That is truly fascinating because you know we you know it really makes you wonder: Would law enforcement uh, take up? the duty and roles of federal regulations, uh, you know, and it's funny too, you brought this up in pre-show and I actually went through my survey here in the background. We did this big survey last year and I was like, I'm pretty sure I asked one of these questions. And so I asked the audience, you know, do you believe that the FAA is enforcing enough? And 71% said no. And so I think that, you know, exactly what you said and you're alluding to that 
you know, look, we, we know what's going on, you know, and, and the audience that who hears this message, you're not the problem, right? It's, it's the people, the, the availability to go out and buy a drone from Best Buy, from wherever, and just go out and fly it, which, look, we want kids to be able to do that, right? We want STEM uh, to be able to inspire and motivate the children of this nation for even national security rights. I mean, look, at the end of the day, we are going to need engineers to power this tech powerhouse of the United States. Where is that going to come from, you know? And so it's just such a such an important thing. Miriam, it really makes me wonder, though, would law enforcement really be up to the task of enforcing this? Because it brings up the question, you know, with um, your analogy of drones versus cars, not drones versus everything else aviation, which... I don't think I've heard before other other than in pre-show, right? But I, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant comparison. And it makes you wonder, well, how long was it uh, from the day that we had the inception of vehicles to someone actually regulating and giving out licenses for those vehicles? I mean, how long? I know that answer. What is it? <laughs> I know that answer. I know this one. Um, you know, this is something I just find so interesting. I actually, I wrote an article once several years ago about about the first hundred years of the automotive regulations and how that compared. But there were 60 years between when the first automobiles were um, built and the first DMV opened its doors. 60 years, man. <laughs> so we're moving faster than that. It's coming faster than 60 years. But I think things like remote ID, I mean, that that's setting it up, right? So that was the other thing that uh, that Steve Dixon said. He, he did this actually very funny analogy. He says, you know, even Paul Mickelson can't, like, see the drone and, and look up on his cell phone. Who drove? Who? Because <laughs> Paul Mickelson, the golfer, he complained that a drone interfered with his shot. Anyway, he, he can't look up who is operating that drone, but law enforcement with proper... Uh, you know, identification and so forth could in the same way that when you drive by, I don't know immediately that your license plate number is where you are and what your address is, right? I can't look that up. I don't have the authority to look that up, but local law enforcement does. So I think that we're kind of setting up the building blocks for some of these frameworks that might make that uh, more practical. Wow. Oh, wow. Uh, it, wow. This FAA symposium might have been filled with a lot of little uh, nuggets about what's to come. <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, we're going to have to dive more into the remote ID and enforcement aspect because it does bring up a very important question, Miriam. And thank you, you know, for teeing it up, which is does remote ID kind of empower enforcement? You know, does it uh, does it allow for more enforcement? Is that a good thing or a bad thing for the industry? You know, when you think about how many drones DJI has sold alone versus how many safety incidents we have, you know, you're talking less than 1% of 1%, you know, of safety issues. So uh, it really does beg for many questions, Miriam. But I do, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, that that's a can of worms. <laughs> so fascinating, so fascinating. I just um, that's that's what we love, right, about the drone industry. Something new to think about every day. So that is so true. Yeah. Well, Miriam, thank you so much for your time today, and uh, thank you very much and for joining me and starting this new news show, uh, the Drone Life News. I'm just I'm very, very grateful for you. So thank you. 
Oh, so much fun. I'm so glad that we uh, found a way to work together. So look forward to talking to you next week. Definitely. Well, we'll see you next week. That's going to do it for us, everyone. If you want to check out more of Miriam's very detailed and in-depth writing, you've got to check out dronelife.com. But that's going to do it for everyone here. Thanks again for joining us. My name is Paul. Her name is Miriam. And this is Drone Life News.